If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 13 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2. Our text this morning, we're going to focus on verses 23 of chapter 1 to verse 3 of chapter 2, but I'm going to read starting in verse 13 of chapter 1. 1 Peter. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter that Peter wrote to strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor. Thank you that the words ring true today because you have preserved your word for us. Father, I pray that you would uh, be with this time. pray that I would speak clearly. I pray that we'd be able to focus on your word and what you have for us. And I pray that what is said and done during this next hour or so would honor and glorify you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Though the cover is worn, though the pages are torn, though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book, worn and old, that can shatter and scatter our fears. This old book is my guide. It's my friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way. And each treasure I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it each day. I want to talk about the Word of God this morning. I think Peter, in this passage from verse 23 of chapter 1 to verse 3 of chapter 2, tells us at least four important things about the Word of God. Remember, 1 Peter comes to us from the hand of a fisherman who became a disciple of the man Jesus of Nazareth. And this disciple became an apostle. And he wrote this letter of 1 Peter to folks he called strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor. Peter told the pilgrims in verse 13 where we started reading that the overarching principle 
of the way of Christ, of this Christian life, is to be holy. He says, be ye holy. And from really verse 13, I think till the end of the, the epistle, he explains and unpacks what it means to be holy. And I think one of the, the next level unpackings that he does is in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. If you don't do those things, you're well on your way to living in holiness. And last we met, we talked about what it means to love the brotherhood. And the time before that, we talked about what it means to fear God. Uh, and, and we're really here in the section, we're still in the section where we're talking about the brotherhood. Lord willing, the next time we meet to discuss this epistle, we'll talk about the nature of the priesthood of the believer and the body into which Christ has called us. But sandwiched here between Peter's command to unfeigned love of the brethren and instructions regarding the priesthood are these verses, really a flight of poetic praise and instruction regarding the word of God. Because this is the foundation of everything else that we're doing. Uh, Peter describes the Word of God as incorruptible seed. He says it lives and abides forever. He contrasts it with grass and the temporal glory of man. He says it endures forever. Uh, he compares it to sincere or pure milk. We're going to study in this short section how Peter describes the Word as divine, as eternal, as pure, and as sufficient. And I want to start by thinking about its divine origin. If you're following along in the bulletin, that's our first blank. The Word of God has a divine origin. Sometimes we use language so casually and frequently that we neglect its deepest and truest meaning. I think a perfect example of this is in our text, the phrase, Word of God. We use the phrase, Word of God, frequently in Christian circles. But what does that mean? What does Peter mean here when he says word of God? Uh, is it just referring to the Bible? Isn't Jesus called the word? And to understand this phrase word of God, I think we first have to think about the term word. What is a word? A dictionary might define word as an element of speech or writing that expresses an idea. It's a communication. But could it be in speaking this way so casually that we've neglected this deepest meaning of the term word? Consider the beginning of John's gospel in those familiar words. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Those raised in church automatically understand, oh, in John 1, word means Jesus. And that's true. Uh, John tells us things about this word. He says, all things were made by him, and we know that is true only of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16 says, of Christ Jesus, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. But of all the terms John could have used to describe Jesus, why does he call him the Word? Couldn't he have said, in the beginning was the Lamb? Or, in the beginning was the Son? And what does John's use of this term, Word, tell us about the true meaning in our phrase, Word of God? Consider this. A word is generally a tangible way to express something that predates the expression. In other words, the thing being expressed already exists 
and the word spoken or written is a way to manifest that thing. For example, a place exists having sun, sand, water, salt water, towels, suntan lotion. We know this place exists and we can, we can manifest it, we can express it with the word beach. And when I say beach, you know what I'm talking about. And that's a tangible place, but it can also be uh, used to bring intangible things into existence. Uh, as another example, consider a mother who was up at 2 o'clock in the morning with a child who was very sick, uh, and then she stays up uh, very early in the morning to take care of uh, her other children on three hours of sleep. Uh, she makes them breakfast. She monitors their schooling. She washes their clothes, gives them baths, takes care of them, reads them stories, tucks them in at night, prays to them, sings to them. That situation can be expressed using the word love. Love isn't a physical quantity. We can't bottle it, but we can express it. We can express the reality of it using a word. And with this in mind, consider John 1.14 and the familiar words, and the word was made flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. We know that the Son of God existed from all eternity. All things were made by him. But the Son did not always have a fleshly body. The incarnation happened in time. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh at a specific point in time. And he did this so that the son could become a faithful high priest, made like his brothers in every respect except without sin. The eternal son found expression in the world in the incarnation. What does all this have to do with the phrase word of God? Just this. The term word has a range of meaning that goes beyond our ordinary usage. A word is a breaking through. A word manifests the unseen. A word, in a way, is a picture of a heavenly spiritual principle descending to earth and becoming a tangible reality that we, earthbound creatures, can interact with and relate to. With this foggy idea of what the word, word, means, we come to the second portion of our phrase, word of God, which is, of God. Peter isn't concerned with the word of man. He's concerned with the word of God. It was through God's speech, <clears throat> the word of God, that the fundamental physical realities comprising the material universe came into existence. We're familiar with the words at the beginning of the Bible. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. If a word is a manifestation of the unseen, if a word is a way in which the unseen reality breaks into the tangible world, then what is the word of God? In what way has God's word been expressed in the world? You know, we've all heard or used the term inspired. Uh, sometimes we use the term inspired to refer to a performance or a play or a film uh, or, or even there's inspirational quotes. This word inspire comes from a Latin word, inspirare, which just means to breathe into. It means to breathe into. Uh, in the Bible, we get this word from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So when we consider how the word of God has manifested itself in our world, we should ask, into what has God breathed? Into what has God spoken? We just read first, uh, Genesis 1.3, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. It was through God's speech, it was through his word, that physical reality came into existence. 
Uh, Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews in 11.3 says it this way, we know that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And not only were they created by the word, but they're held together by the word. Again, the author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, you may turn there if you'd like. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, Notice that the author of the Hebrews doesn't say that God upholds all things by his power. It says he holds all things together by the word of his power. We live in a world, word-constructed and word-sustained universe. But back to creation. One of the fundamental physical realities that God spoke into existence was the dry land. Genesis 1.9 says, And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. After God had finished all of his other creative work, he made the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the birds, the fish, and land animals, God took some of the dry land that he'd already spoken into existence, and he inspired it. He breathed into it the breath of life. Genesis 2, 7, and God form, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But God didn't leave that living soul into which he had breathed to stumble through the word-sustained world on his own. God continued speaking to that living soul and to his descendants. The constant refrain of the Old Testament prophets is this. The word of the Lord came, saying, they never claimed to speak on their own authority. They never claimed to speak their own words. It was the word of the Lord came, saying. And so, in this word-created, word-sustained world, the word of God came and spoke to the inspired dust. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The prophets recorded the word of the Lord in the pages of the Old Testament. They did not record their own words. God spoke through them. Of course, we see the individual character of the prophets, unique vocabulary, recognizable style. But like a great composer selects instruments, or a great painter selects brushes with which to apply paint. God selected the prophets to communicate the exact words in exactly the way he wanted to express himself. And so God expressed his word to man. The word of God as first spoken and then written words. First handwritten on scrolls of papyrus and animal skin and now in books printed on paper and bound into a collection of inspired writings. So to answer our original question, in what way has God's word been expressed in the world? What word did Peter refer to? He refers to the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures. 
When we reach the New Testament, we see the Lord Jesus and the apostles view the scripture in just this way. We've already read Peter's teaching that the prophets spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But consider this. When the Lord Jesus quoted the Old Testament, he treated it as God's very word. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one 31 contains this very interesting phrase from Jesus. He's quoting the Old Testament and he says this. He says, Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, and he quotes a section of the Old Testament. But what's interesting here is that he's speaking to people who lived many years after this word was first spoken, and he's quoting a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, or potentially Aramaic, but regardless, he's quoting a translation of the Old Testament, and he's quoting it to people who lived many years after this was spoken, but Jesus viewed the words of God written on a page as having been spoken to his audience. So what does that mean for us? It means when we read the word of God, even in translation, we don't have to read Greek and Hebrew in order to read the word of God. When we read what God has written, it is as though he is speaking to us. That's the way Jesus viewed the Bible. And, uh, we've only barely touched this topic. This is a big topic. I could talk about it for a very long time. But Peter says other things about the word that I'd like to think about a little bit. We have God's word in the pages of the Old and New Testaments. God himself spoke to his inspired creatures in his word-sustained universe. The living texts in which God has chosen to reveal himself to the world are at our convenient access all the time in this country. We are inspired beings living in an inspired world guided by an inspired book. A final note. You might say, or at least some people outside this building might say, that this is circular reasoning. Oh, you're saying that the Bible is the word of God because it says it's the word of God. That's circular reasoning. Uh, and that is, of course, true. Every appeal to ultimate authority is circular. But without a source of ultimate authority, then you have to question everything. And if you have to question everything, then you can't know or say anything. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. The word of God provides the basis for understanding all reality. Moving on to our second blank. God saw fit to express himself to his creatures in his word, the word of God, but do we still have access to his words? Did he leave it up to mankind to keep his words from being corrupted and lost over time? Or has he providentially preserved his words in history? Not the blank. The word has been providentially preserved. See, Peter describes this word as something that is incorruptible. Uh, that is to say, it, it's not subject to corruption. It will not rust. It doesn't deteriorate. It doesn't decay over time. 
Some translations say it is imperishable. It has no expiration date. It lives and abides and endures forever. Peter contrasts the word with the grass of the field and the glory of man because those things, while remarkable in their own time, pass away. A plant life we know is beautiful but brief. We could go over to Inniswood here in the spring and it'll be beautiful. There'll be roses all summer long. Uh, But then we know, come this fall, uh, it'll be brown and we'll have to wait for the spring again. Um, Soon we'll see the brown grass revived and some of us will have lush green lawns. I use organic lawn care, so some other lawns are greener and lusher than mine. But, but But we know that plant life passes away. The glory of man is more impressive to us because it lasts for our lifetime. It seems like it lasts much longer than grass. But no matter how powerful or how wealthy or how influential a man is during his lifetime, he will die and ultimately be forgotten. The glory of man is only slightly more permanent than the grass of the field. But the word of the Lord has no expiration date. It is incorruptible. It is imperishable. It will endure forever. It's difficult to overstate the force of this word incorruptible because of the way Peter uses it. There are four incorruptible things in 1 Peter. The first we find in verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, We are born again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Our heavenly inheritance is the first uncorruptible. The second uncorruptible is in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Peter says, For as much as ye know you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, down in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is Peter's second corruptible. The third we've already read in verse 23, the word of God is incorruptible. And then the fourth, I think is very interesting. It's a godly woman's meek and quiet spirit. Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3. It says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. The word of God has the same incorruptible character as the resurrection, our heavenly inheritance. The word of God has the same incorruptible character as the blood of Christ, Which is to say this, God will no sooner let his word pass away than heaven itself. God will no sooner let his word pass away or perish than he will allow the blood of his son shed on the cross for our sins to perish. Many in the world, of course, do not believe God's preserved his words. In an interview with late night host Stephen Colbert, The atheist actor and comedian Ricky Gervais uh, posed an objection to this line of thinking that I think many would find compelling. The, The one version of this interview that I watched on YouTube had over 14 million views. Ricky Gervais said this. He says, science is constantly proved over time. If we took something like any fiction and any holy book and any other fiction and destroyed it, in a thousand years time, that wouldn't come back just as it was. Whereas if we took every science book and every fact and destroyed them all, in a thousand years' time, they'd all be back because all the same tests would be the same result. 
Uh, Ricky Gervais is expressing what he believes to be the fundamental controlling principles of the universe. He believes that scientific principles, and not the word of God, lay at the root of it all, and that scientific principles would eventually resurface over time, but that the word of God never would. Of course, the Bible says, as we've already read, that God holds the world, the universe together by the word of his power. So the fundamental controlling principle of the universe is God's word. But regardless of these assumptions about the nature of reality, did you know that the Bible contains a story of a man who tried to do precisely what Ricky Gervais is suggesting? Turn to the book of Jeremiah. It's right after the book of Isaiah. If you've reached Ezekiel, not only have you gone too far, you've also entirely skipped Lamentations. <laughs> Jeremiah, and we're going to be in chapter 36. In Jeremiah 36, King Jehoiakim tried exactly what Ricky Gervais suggested doing. I wish we could read this whole chapter, but I want to just be here to illustrate the incorruptibility of the word that Peter talks about, and so I will summarize it for you. Now, it begins in verse 1 of chapter 36 of Jeremiah by saying, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying. So we know that this happened in the, during the reign of King Jehoiakim. Now, I'm sure I don't need to remind any of you about the life and times of King Jehoiakim, but just in case someone needs a reminder, King Jehoiakim was king of the southern kingdom, Judah. His life is summarized in various portions of, of the Old Testament. And in uh, 2 Chronicles 36.5, it says this. It says, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. That's the summary of this man's life. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Or, to paraphrase the President of the United States, Jehoiakim was a bad dude. It was in this context that we read in verses 2 and 3, it says, the, Take thee a roll of a book, or a scroll, and write therein all the words I've spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all nations. So God tells Jeremiah to write these words against Israel and Judah. They're going to be words of condemnation against Jehoiakim's wicked kingdom. Uh, this chapter then records a series of events, which I'm going to summarize. Uh, Jeremiah spoke to his scribe, a man named Baruch, uh, and Baruch recorded Jeremiah's words in a scroll. Next, Baruch went to the temple during a day of fasting, and he read the scroll, it says, in the ears of all the people, in verse 10. Well, one of those people was related to a royal official in Jehoiakim's court. And he went and told the royal officials. Um, when the royal officials then called Baruch and heard the scroll read, it says in verse 16, they were afraid both one and another because they recognized the great words of judgment being spoken against the wicked kingdom of which they were a part. Uh, at this point, the officials go and tell King Jehoiakim and he wants to hear for himself. So we're going to pick up with a story in verse 20 of chapter 36. It says, and they went into the king, in, I'm sorry, and they went in to the king into the court. But they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read, read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. 
And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Jehoiakim did not like what he read in the scroll of Jeremiah. And so, he thought, there's an easy solution to this problem. I will burn the only copy in existence. But let's pick up again in verse 27. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. We could, we could read this story for quite a bit longer. But the point is that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Our little children in Sunday school are memorizing Psalm 119.89. says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. See, King Jehoiakim destroyed the only copy of the scroll of Jeremiah that was in existence. But the original uh, was not on this earth, and he couldn't destroy that. And God re-inspired Jeremiah to write exactly the same words over again. I think it's an amazing testament to God's ability to keep his word, to preserve his word providentially. It's incorruptible. You know, King Jehoiakim didn't know what the little children in Citizens Church Sunday School know. He didn't know that the Lord's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Someone might destroy every copy of the Bible on earth. And many have tried. Many have done their best to stamp out the word of God in a region or a country. But it won't stop what is firmly fixed in the heavens from being communicated to people because you can't stop God from communicating to those whom he wants to communicate with. Unlike the grass of the field and the glory of man, God's word will live and abide forever. I think there's a warning here. I think few or none in this room would be tempted to tear a page out of the Bible and throw it into a fire. But beware, lest you take the penknife of your mind and cut out what you don't like and disregard it, and you become spiritually what King Jehoiakim was physically. Jesus says the scripture can't be broken. We have to believe all of it or believe none of it. Let's move, let's move to Peter's next point uh, in, in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Uh, Let's think for a moment about the word sincere in my translation. The word means without deceit or free from fraud. In Peter's time, this word referred to unmixed liquids. Uh, some translations say pure, and that's a very good idea. It's that the, the word is unadulterated by anything false. And so the blank I have is unadulterated. It, it, the idea of a, of a pure substance. Uh, one way to talk about the purity of God's word is to describe it as having no errors. In theological terms, Peter's description of the word as sincere or pure means that the word is inerrant, without error. Of course, the Bible does record mistakes people made, but the record of those mistakes contains no error. Uh, many, of course, don't believe that the Bible is free from error. Uh, uh, Ligonier Ministries, many of us are familiar with, uh, they conduct a survey each year that they call the, the State of Theology. 
Here are some statistics that I pulled from last year's results. And I filtered these results to include only those who identify as evangelical. Modern science disproves the Bible. This is a statement. People indicate their agreement or disagreement with it. Modern science disproves the Bible. 30% of self-identified evangelicals agree or strongly agree with this statement that modern science disproves the Bible. 7% aren't sure. Uh, next statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but is not literally true. 26% of self-identified evangelicals uh, agree or strongly agree with this statement. 3% aren't sure. So 30% of self-identified evangelicals agree modern science disproves the Bible. 26% believe the Bible simply contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but is not literally true. Again, I can't emphasize enough, these responses are from people who are self-identified evangelicals, whatever that term means. This sort of thinking betrays a bankrupt worldview that values the word of men over the word of God. Or perhaps these folks live in C.S. Lewis's transparent world. But in contrast to these 30% of confused evangelicals, Peter tells us we should have confidence in the purity of of the word of God. And Peter isn't the only one. The scriptures are filled with testimonies to the purity of God's word. I'm going to read three verses now uh, that speak to this. Psalm 119, 140 says, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Psalm 12, 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Proverbs 30, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. This purity is a very logical conclusion about the word of God based on what we've already discussed. Uh, because the Bible is God's very word and because God preserves his word, we can be confident that God's word has no errors. First, God's word cannot contain error because we know from, for example, Hebrews 6.18, that it is impossible for God to lie. And so if this is his word, then it cannot contain error. Second, we can be confident in the word's inerrancy because God has preserved his word. Why would he preserve only part of his word? Peter says it was preserved in purity. It's a pure word. Uh, finally, I, I want to think about this description of the word as milk. What are we to do with this pure, preserved, inspired word of God? He's, Peter tells us, says, we are to desire it. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Uh, it's interesting that Peter compares the word to milk. Um, uh, milk of the word. The, the, in the original, the term word that appears in some translations uh, is actually used as an adjective to modify the word milk. Um, so quite literally, it reads, desire the pure, wordy milk. But because wordy milk sounds gross and confusing, most translators have translated this as either milk of the word or spiritual milk. But why does Peter compare the word to milk? He's not telling us here that we should have an infantile or juvenile faith. 
Sometimes in Scripture we see milk contrasted with meat. You know, Paul chastised the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 2. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. This is sort of a, a condemnation, that there's, there's this meat of the word you need to get into, but all you can handle is milk because you're still babies. That's not what Peter's getting at. This is a different metaphor. Peter's saying this, just like newborn babies have a singular focus and desire mother's milk because it is necessary and sufficient for growth, that is the same type of desire that we should have for the word of God. An otherwise healthy newborn baby needs his mother's milk before anything else. It is necessary for his survival. Uh, not only is milk necessary for a newborn baby's survival, it's also sufficient. Mother's milk is, has, is an incredibly designed substance. Uh, it contains exactly the nutrients a baby needs in exactly the right concentration. If a newborn baby has his mother's milk, he needs no other sustenance. For the believer, the word of God is both necessary and sufficient. And that's the blank is the word sufficient. The word is sufficient. If a believer does not avail himself of the word of God, then he will not grow. So many believers start off well. They hear the word in the gospel and they believe it. But then they become second-hand Christians. Would you know what I mean by second-hand Christians? They read Christian books and articles about the Bible. They might listen to Christian sermons and podcasts about the Bible. They listen to someone else who studied the Bible talk about the Bible. But their own Bibles collect dust on a shelf. Charles Spurgeon famously warned in his own day, he says, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. The eternal God spoke and then preserved his word for us. How can we neglect this treasure? But not only is it necessary for our growth, it's sufficient. The word of God contains everything that a believer needs to walk the way of Christ in holiness. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word equips us from the beginning of the Christian life to the end of the Christian life to perform every good work in the Christian life. The word, Peter reminds us, is the means by which we were born again. Verse 23, being born again, not of incorruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. It's in these pages that we first read or heard of the word made flesh who came down as the man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He was made like us in every respect except for without sin so that he could go to the cross, take our sin, pay for it, and be made a perfect high priest by the incorruptible blood of his cross. We're born into the faith through this word, and we walk by this word. For some of us, one of the first memory verses we memorized in children's Sunday school was, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Never doubt the sufficiency of the word of God. The word is perfectly sufficient on, us own, on its own to help us grow. Never believe you need anything in addition to the word of God. Now, some things can be helpful. 
We can talk about ancient creeds and Bible study guides. Uh, we've got our statements of faith. We've got Bible storybooks. All of these things can be helpful tools. And I know for sure that I personally have found resources that have helped me greatly. There's books and sermons. But the ones that have helped me the most have been the ones that have driven me back to the Word, the Bible itself. Uh, the Word of God is sufficient for our spiritual growth. Now, a couple thoughts on applying all of this. How can we take advantage of this inspired, preserved, pure, sufficient Word of God? How can we make this promise of growth that ye may grow thereby? How can we make this promise of growth a reality in our own lives? First, and this is not an exhaustive list, but we should approach the Word in prayer. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12 that he guides us, he opens our eyes that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. So I think we should always approach this word in prayer that we could understand and apply. Second, we should read the word. How can we obey it if we don't know it? Psalm 119 is really just one long poem about the word of God. And in verse 9 of Psalm 119, it says this. It says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? I wonder if there are any young men whose ways need cleansing. I wonder if you know any young men whose ways need cleansing. How? How can a young man cleanse his way? The psalmist answers, says, By taking heed thereto according to thy word. A couple, couple additional points, and I think these three and fourth go hand in hand. In, additionally, in addition to prayer and actually reading, I think we should memorize and meditate on the Word. Again, Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. We should hide God's Word in our heart. And I know that we're adults, many of us in this room, and we think that Bible memory verses are something we left behind in Sunday school. But make it a practice. Uh, if your children are in the Sunday school, we have a memory verse. Or memorize a verse a week or a verse a month. Start small. Uh, but memorize God's word and hide it in your heart. And as you memorize, meditate on the word. Uh, consider its implications. Bring to bear on the word everything you know from God's general revelation, your experiences, Everything else you know from the Word of God and see how it's consistent, meditate on the Word, small pieces as you memorize them, and let the Word do its work on you. Uh, one final point is, is we should strive to have and construct Christian homes where the Word is known. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 is such a commonly read passage, but it's commonly read for a reason. It should be the foundation of a believing home. It says, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates." When Paul in Ephesians tells a Christian father to raise his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, a Christian father does that 
by speaking to his children these, what Psalm 78 calls dark sayings of old, the tales of the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles. If you are raising children, if you have a Christian home that you are trying to build, build it on the word. Should nothing of our effort stands, no legacy survive, unless the Lord do build the house in vain, its builders strive. Build it on the word. God's given us his very words. He preserved them through persecution, spiritual darkness, and war. This word is without error and is perfectly and utterly sufficient for our growth. I'll close with the final stanzas to the poem by uh, a saint called My Old Bible. It says, When I prayerfully look in the precious old book, many treasures and pleasures I see. Many promises of love from the Father above, who is nearest and dearest to me. To this book I will cling, of its worth I will sing, though great losses and crosses be mine. For I cannot despair, though surrounded by care, while possessing this blessing divine. Father, thank you for your word. Again, thank you for this letter, this epistle of Peter. Thank you that his words continue to echo down to the present day, and it's because they weren't his words, but they were, in fact, the very words of God, your words, that you spoke through the prophets and the apostles to us. Father, I pray that as we face challenges in our lives, that we will have hidden enough of God's word that we're able to respond to challenges better. I pray that you would Help us to take advantage and treat this book, this library of books, of holy inspired writings, like the treasure that it is, that we would read it, that we would memorize it, that we'd meditate on it. I pray for your Spirit's work in our hearts and in our lives, that this word would change us. And I pray now, as we approach your table, that we would focus our thoughts and attention on these symbols of the broken body and the shed blood of the incarnate Son of God, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us full of grace and truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.